Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, 30 years ago, East and West Germany reunited after the fall of the Soviet Union. It was 1990, the same year the World Wide Web debuted. Plus, singer Mariah Carey's blockbuster hit, Vision of Love, kicked off her career. And President George H.W. Bush signed into law the Americans with Disabilities Act, banning discrimination against millions of Americans in education, transportation, and public accommodations. Three decades later, the one in four adult Americans with disabilities have benefited from ADA's protections. Benefits threatened by the wide-ranging impact of COVID-19 and by the ever-widening inequities in health care and employment. In this 30th anniversary year of the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the disability rights movement looks back to the bill's legacy and ahead to new challenges. Later in the show, donations to charities are down, but Americans are giving to some. You know, unfortunately, we've seen an increase in rent, food, and monthly bill fundraisers. And so we created an, a new category to house those fundraisers and help connect the donors who want to give to, to folks that need help. COVID-19 and GoFundMe. But first, joining me remotely, Kristen McCosh, Commissioner of the Disabilities Commission for the City of Boston. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. I'm happy to join in this conversation. Michael Stein, Executive Director of the Harvard Law School Project on Disability and Visiting Professor at Harvard Law School. Hello, Michael. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to join you, everyone. And Jeffrey Yasua Mansfield, Design Director at Mass Design Group and a Disability Futures Fellows. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello. Excited to be a part of today's conversation today. We also have American Sign Language interpreter Aaron Wegahop joining us today to facilitate communication between everyone. I want to start this way. Um, let's go back to 1990 to get a visceral sense of the advocacy which led to the ADA's passage. For more than 40 million Americans who are physically or mentally disabled, a new era is dawning. A bill nearing passage in Congress would mandate equal access for the disabled. This legislation is a bill of rights for the disabled, and America will be a better and fairer nation because of it. The passage of this monumental legislation will make it clear that our government will no longer allow the largest minority group in the United States to be denied equal opportunity. To do any less is immoral. Kristen McCosh, you hear that back from 1990, and uh, I am reminded that you were living your life pre-ADA, so this act has had a direct impact on your life. Uh, talk about that personally and professionally. So I had my injury in 1983, and the ADA wasn't passed 
until 1990. So I went from being a young woman of privilege, uh, living, you know, in a home with a family, to instantly becoming a citizen of the United States who had no civil rights. My family found that the systems that we depended on were no longer available. And one of the biggest examples I like to use of a system that was completely inaccessible was school. I was 15 years old and I was in high school. And when you're in high school, you know, everything is a big deal. You want to fit in. You, you don't want to stand out. You want to be accepted. So not only was I dealing with the issues around my disability personally, but trying to go back to high school was nearly impossible. At the time, there was only one Boston public high school that was accessible, and it wasn't the one that I attended. So I had it advocate. My parents had to advocate with the school system. I did home tutoring for a year, and then we ended up changing my classes around so I could go to school just on a first floor. So it was a, it was a stark example of how I went from such privilege to, to having no access and, and no place in the world. Now, as a commissioner of the Disabilities Commission for the, the city of Boston, um, you can therefore really see professionally how the ADA has made an impact. I have. And interestingly enough, um, the ADA was passed in 1990 when I was in college. And then when I graduated from college, my first job was actually with the Cambridge Disability Commission. So I worked in municipal government way back then. That was in 1993 when the regulations for the ADA were just being implemented. So I got to participate in their self-evaluation and, and transition plan, which was required by all municipalities. They had to assess all of their facilities, their programs, their policies to ensure that they were accessible. And if they weren't, they had to create a plan, a transition plan to create that access. And then when I came to be Disability Commissioner in Boston in 2010, I was able to bring that uh, professional experience along with all my lived experience and advocacy into the role. So it's a lot of hard work and it's, it's challenging in a city like Boston, because I always say about Boston, the city is an old city, it's a winter city, it's a densely packed city, and it's a vertical city. So all of these things make access really challenging. So Michael Stein, pick up on that, because when you uh, went to law school, you're now a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, but when you went to law school, you're saying the law didn't really exist, and so you were facing a lot of barriers. When I went to law school, when I was interviewing for law school, 1985 is when I started. Um, I went to interview and I met the then Dean of Students. And when we discussed what my life would be like or what support I may or may not have all before the ADA, I was told that there was only one dorm that had a ramp, that within the dorm itself, there would be no adaptations to the bathroom. There would be no access to laundry. I wouldn't be able to use a kitchen that during the Boston winters when my classmates would go underground into the tunnels in order to access their classrooms, I would have no access to that. I had to go above ground, through the snow, backwards, you know, uphill, barefoot, all that. And I also became the first person with a disability to have become a member of the Harvard Law Review, breaking that glass ceiling after 100 years. Fast forward 20 years, 2005, which is when I returned to Harvard and began teaching disability law at Harvard. I've been teaching it elsewhere since 1994. And I'm telling this story to my students. So 20 years later, a different generation, they had grown up with the ADA. They thought 
thought those circumstances were absolutely out of this world. And that's wonderful because their expectations had shifted 180 degrees from someone with a disability, not being part of the community, being accommodated or being kind of a burden to having a professor with a disability teaching them. And they thought that was normal. So Jeffrey Yasua Mansfield, you are a child of the ADA, meaning that you presumably got most of the benefits of it. And yet, when you went to school, you saw where some of the deficits uh, still remains. I started school in 1989, so one year prior to the ADA passing. And that was a very unique year because, you know, the school I went to in Framingham, Massachusetts, uh, was the Learning Center for Deaf Children. And it is the first school in the country to be established by uh, for a bicultural experience. And so I had full access to language in the classroom. Everybody used American Sign Language. And that's how I, you know, uh, grew up. I grew up in that environment where I felt like I could fully participate in my education. Uh, the impact of the ADA in that environment, you know, felt uh, to me, it, it felt very normal. Uh, I did start to realize more and more as I grew up and got into college and I started to realize, okay, I have to really start to think about, you know, booking an interpreter and arranging my own accommodations. And, and really that became a, a challenge, uh, you know, as I uh, went through my graduate school and tried to get involved with extracurricular activities, I really had to almost justify each request for an interpreter or each request for an accommodation and the uh, emotional uh, work is exhausting. However, at the same time, the mere fact that I had the ability to make those requests for accommodations or to demand accommodations was very empowering and really changed the framework for how we consider uh, our participation in society as citizens. As a child of the ADA, I, I see potential for a lot more change in that next generation. You know, how do we continue to push the, the needle really to radical accessibility? How do we create an infrastructure that shifts society where accessibility is already the foundational basis or condition, not an add-on or an afterthought. I am both very grateful and frustrated by the ADA. However, it's a very, very powerful legislation. And to be in a position at this moment in time where we are now able to ask and demand for more is truly, truly exciting. So picking up from what Jeffrey just said, the frustration plus the gratefulness is where I hear a lot of people with disabilities say they are in this moment. Kristen, what is chief right now, getting people to understand that more is needed um, for support of people with disabilities? Yeah, so the thing that we first focused on as a city was ensuring that people were safe and fed because we know there are people who live in poverty, there are people with different challenges who are city residents. So we had to assure emergency safety first. After you get to that point and things start to stabilize, if you can call it that, you start to look at what systems really need improvement. And one thing that stands out um, in every facet is um, digital connectivity. So a lot of people with disabilities 
don't have access to the internet. They may not have a smartphone. They may not have a computer. And people who used to go to a library or a, a senior center or um, a community center to use the, the digital tools are no longer able to do that. And now so many things are just delivered online. Because of COVID-19, you're saying? Because of COVID-19, right. You can't mm-hmm. go in person mm-hmm. to a senior center. You can't go to your usual places where you would get digital support. So we really see as a city we need to work on that. Michael Stein, what do you see exposed as a result of COVID-19? What we saw because of the pandemic and what we're continuing to see is people with various disabilities, especially those living in group homes and elsewhere, not having their regular access to healthcare, being put down the priority list, which on one level is understandable during a time of emergency and triage, but on another level is having an immense impact upon them. We've seen some good work regarding the crisis standards of care, which is the triage guidelines. Many of them at the beginning of the pandemic, which were developed before the pandemic, excluded people with disabilities either overtly, such as the state of Alabama saying that people with intellectual disabilities should be ineligible for ventilator services, or implicitly by putting in conditions like what are your long-term survival prospects, which is not the issue for emergency care. Emergency care is meant to fix you up and get you out of the hospital. Whether you live two years or 50 years should be irrelevant. And due to some very good disability advocacy, these CSCs, these crisis standards of care standards have been amended. But having said that, um, you know, people with disabilities are very worried about their health care generally, and that was the circumstance before the pandemic. They're more worried about it now due to the pandemic, um, due to the efforts by the administration to strip the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and in particular with people with disabilities. There's great concerns in the community that when Congress reconvenes and when they send out the money to states, that the agenda from the current White House that states be able to prioritize who will receive healthcare and how is either going to force people back into congregate care, meaning group homes and institutions, or put the necessary services that they need way farther down the ladder. Jeffrey, how would you answer that question? First of all, I, I would like to re, uh, reemphasize what Michael has stated. A lot of our community, especially in the deaf community, for many, many, many years of distrust, you know, between the community members and medical institutions has created, you know, major gaps in the healthcare literacy of our community. And so exactly how we partner or bridge that gap is, you know, in moments like this uh, with COVID-19, because of years of trauma and distrust, now all of a sudden our community is very apprehensive, very fearful of the fact that if we get to the point where we have to ration health care, how does that impact our community? How does that impact us as individuals who are disabled? And now with COVID-19 and the use of masks, it's such a challenge for deaf people. Uh, you know, we are uh, we're having a very hard time lip reading or attempting to lip read our language. American Sign Language is very dependent on facial expressions. And now half our faces are covered. As a result, it creates unnecessary anxiety. Not only that, however, 
today, we're more inclined to self-isolate ourselves out of fear and in order to, you know, minimize or mitigate the, the spread. But we're already isolated as a community, as individuals, uh, even pre-COVID-19. Today, this isolation is becoming enhanced and increased to the point where uh, we are seeing major mental health impact, but we are also a very resilient community. You're an architect. You're working to make sure that the spaces that certainly you oversee and that you teach other people to uh, build uh, have uh, the accessibility that is required. But I'm wondering how you have seen COVID-19 impact your work and your students' work. With COVID-19 and in regards to space, we're now more aware of how we move, how we use space uh, to socialize. We are now looking at you know, prioritizing public spaces and access to public spaces that are going to be safer and more equitable. You know, there are opportunities there as we retrofit our spaces and as we consider infectious control in new buildings and new spaces, there are opportunities there to also integrate that thinking with accessibility. How we make spaces that increase the level of trust and, you know, as mentioned, bridging that gap, you know, between the different communities that the building intends to serve. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Christian McCosh, Commissioner of the Disabilities Commission for the City of Boston, Michael Stein, Executive Director of the Harvard Law School Project on Disability, and Jeffrey Yasua Mansfield, Design Director at Mass Design Group. We are also joined by American Sign Language ASL interpreter, Aaron Wegahop, who is facilitating communication between everyone. We're discussing the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I want to turn to something else. Uh, the ADA was born out of advocacy, but it seems to me that in the 30 years that people with disabilities have really made themselves visible through uh, a kind of um, very present advocacy that was not in place prior to the ADA, that that, in fact, is the legacy of the ADA, is that people with disabilities are empowered to really get out there and make everybody else hear what the issues are and see them in very real ways. Is that right, Michael Stein? Am I assessing that correctly? I would say that we were blessed by the ADA in 1990 at a time that social consciousness was not raised regarding the role of persons with disabilities in this country. So what we saw is with the disability rights community circa 1990, no marches on Washington. We didn't have the mall filled with people with disabilities. There has not been, there is not a national figurehead regarding persons with disabilities. And so the law in many ways predated the social consciousness raising. But what it did on the other hand was it gave a goal for the disability rights community to aspire to, to work on and to follow. And so in the years following the ADA, what we're seeing are groups claiming their rights. If we were to reflect for a moment, we would see that the move towards same-sex marriage and same-sex rights has been much, much faster being accepted and being indoctrinated in law and indoctrinated in our culture than has been disability. So we're still a work in progress as far as changing attitudes. And I think that lagging behind has 
been reflected in things like our employment rates and the idea that the ADA is still for many people a matter of inclusion, meaning tolerance, rather than a matter of belonging. Jeffrey, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think what the ADA uh, was very successful in achieving was establishing a minimum expectation, understanding that we also acknowledge that it is the bare minimum, and that's never going to be enough. It, It doesn't allow you to thrive fully. I think we as a disability community are being tolerated versus celebrated. I think today we're at a point where we can acknowledge that these are our rights as citizens, as a human. At the same time, we're moving more towards the disability injustice, where we have rights that are not always transitioning to equal justice. You know, we're now demanding equal justice. And I think that's the next step in, in this movement. Kristen, same question to you about the ADA's impact on advocacy. But I first want to reference the recent agreement announced by the Justice Department with the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families. It corrects a policy by DCF which caused parents with disabilities to lose their children, assuming they couldn't care for them. Yes, exactly. And that was a landmark case. And so that just goes to show the importance of the law, of the actual letter of the law of the ADA. But I think that uh, Michael and Jeffrey both made a good point about inclusion. The way I tend to look at it in my role with the city is there's a difference between access and inclusion, and we strive for both. Access is the bare minimum, and we don't ever strive for the bare minimum in anything we do. We're always striving for more. So what I work on in my office is what we like to call ideal accessibility. So one example I like to use is if you're building a new building, it would be accessible if you create a set of stairs and a ramp, but it would be much more inclusive if you built a flush entryway that everybody could go in together. Um, there was a meeting one time last year at the Boston Public Library, and the library is an old existing building, so they've done a lot of great work on access upgrades, but some of the things remain in place that aren't ideal because it's an old building. So one example is at this meeting, they advertised it to the disability community and they had it in a meeting room that was totally accessible, but the access was of an incline lift. So it goes up the stairs and to try to get 30 people into this meeting who all use wheelchairs one at a time on an incline lift was just so distracting and really undignified. And although it met the letter of the law, it certainly wasn't inclusive. So in my role, I try to institute policies that strive for inclusion. And although you can't mandate inclusion, you can certainly enact policies and procedures that will identify what's not inclusive and strive to achieve that goal. So I want to um, come to a close on this conversation with comments from all of you about the cultural shifts as a result of the ADA and the power of the cultural shifts. So often what happens in a pop culture setting has almost as much impact as some legislation. 30 years ago, people with disabilities were not visible in pop culture, just living their lives. But today there is a very popular reality show called Rolling with Coal and Charisma. Here is Cole Snyder, who is quadriplegic, and Charisma Jamison, who's able-bodied, answering questions about being an interabled couple. They were recently married in November. 
on our flight here. The flight attendant, as I was being transferred into our seat on the plane, and uh, Charisma was helping break down my chair and take the batteries off, uh, the flight attendant said, oh, is she your, your nurse or your aide? I said, oh no, that's my girlfriend. And she kind of looked at me like, oh. It's like, there's an assumption there that she's just helping me. You know, this is a giant step in terms of who we see on television, for one thing. Here's something else I want you to listen to before you answer. The new audio listening guide for the Guggenheim Museum is another example of changes we take for granted now post-ADA. The guide, called Mind's Eye, a sensory guide to the Guggenheim, New York, was designed for the blind and low-vision community. But as Marilee Tarkenton, one of the guide's actor-narrators, who is blind, explains in this clip, it's been embraced by those who are not disabled. I love these moments when they were talking about the low walls and how they weren't smooth. It's not perfectly smooth, but feels very comfortable in our hands. That's the voice of actress Maggie Gyllenhaal narrating there. Running our hands over it, we find it's pitted and uneven, like an orange peel or a cantaloupe due to the many layers of paint used to touch up the walls to keep them bright. I feel that I'm able to access what most people visually access. The sensory guide, um, I feel, is, is for us. It's for my community, but it's actually for everybody. And so that's uh, my question to all of you. It seems to me that so many of the changes that happened because of the ADA and there were mandated changes have really become a part of all of our lives. And at the same time, it seems to me to have uh, brought a more cultural acceptance, if you will, to the disability community. What do you think, Michael? Well, the history of, of disability in this country and elsewhere is one of invisibility. So having an ADA, which its strongest part has been the public accommodations, the ability of people with disabilities to be out and about and to be as part of the world, whether it's going to a restaurant or to your public library, which should be accessible because it's public. All the studies show that that's had the greatest impact as far as changing awareness. The social media that you've played for us is also enormously important and maybe even more so being able to see people with disabilities living otherwise quote unquote normal lives is really the mandate of the ADA. You know, we tend to forget that there are many devices designed specifically for people with disabilities that are now simply a part of mainstream culture. Email, the internet, jacuzzis, and we can go down the list of things which people take for granted and people enjoy, um, which adds to their lives and which are universal. Things like accessible restrooms, those single restrooms. Those restrooms are also being used by families when you have a parent with a child with a different gender, being able to take them to the bathroom. I certainly do for my kids, but they're also now being used by the trans community and by others. So if we think about disability as a mandate for inclusion, as a mandate for redesigning society as a way to include everyone, then everybody wins. Jeffrey, do you agree? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, the one thing the ADA has done really well is bring a spotlight, an experience of the people uh, who are disabled and to actually have a, a value in the legal setting, right? If you look at it historically in the history of our society and institutions, everybody is uh, uh, based on margin. You know, we're away from the public consciousness. However, with more and more inclusion and with the ADA, that you know binary divide has become more and more integrated and the disability experience is now being more and more normalized it's becoming a part of you know daily life versus something that is separated and pushed far far out on the on the horizon of locations it's now being integrated in our day-to-day lives not only that but the disability perspective is now more and more being put front and center the ADA has truly given the, the necessary push for things like this to happen. And I think it's overall very powerful in itself. Today, how we take the next step and truly centralize the experience of you know, people in decision-making, policy-making uh, within our own communities, you know, being uh, a part of the national discussion, we are seeing that more now. And I think I think it's an exciting, an exciting moment to live today. And Kristen, you get the last word. So when you look at the history of people with disabilities, you know, culturally, it had so many negative connotations. It was uh, a source of shame for many families. They kept disabled children hidden away. It had a lot of religious connotations, like it was seen as a curse. I mean, it was just no real, obviously no pride and no real acceptance. So that's one of the biggest cultural shifts I see today, both personally and professionally. Personally, I was injured in a diving accident and a spinal cord injury back then, 35 years ago, was not something that you saw every day because people couldn't get out because movies weren't accessible, the MBTA wasn't accessible. So you really didn't have an opportunity to go out and be seen in public. And so that gives you a personal sense of shame. Like, do I not belong? So when you look at today now, and Michael mentioned earlier, this generation of people with disabilities who are either born with a disability or have acquired one, it's just a totally different attitude for them personally and also for society. I myself am personally in, I'm in an interabled marriage. And when I first started dating my husband, this was 25 years ago, and we always joked that for the first five years we dated, he carried me around on his back because nothing was accessible. But now when we go out together, we'll see a restaurant. And if it has like one step or a threshold, whereas back in the day that would be seen as, oh, that's great. We can get right in with not much trouble as compared to a whole set of stairs. Now we see one step and we get angry. and We say, we're not going to patronize that place of business because I have too much agency and too much empowerment to feel bad about myself. And rather I say, you know, this isn't acceptable in 2020. Well, I thank all of you for joining me to talk about the legacy of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Kristen McCosh is a commissioner of the Disabilities Commission for the City of Boston. Michael Stein is executive director of the Harvard Law School Project on Disability and a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Jeffrey Yasua Mansfield is design director at Mass Design Group and a Disability Futures Fellows. We thank American Sign Language ASL interpreter Aaron Wegahop for joining us today to facilitate communication between everyone. 
Coming up, millions of Americans donated last year during the holiday season, but many of those generous donors have lost jobs and housing because of COVID-19. Suddenly, and for the first time, they are in need of help. What's the state of charitable giving in 2020, and how are charities pivoting to meet the increased need while continuing to appeal for donations? That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. This is the time of good cheer and goodwill towards all, the season of giving. 75% of Americans say they give to charities during December, but more of them are choosing to give directly to individuals. And the pandemic has disrupted the way charities connect with donors. Blame COVID-19 for this year's smaller number of Salvation Army red kettlebell ringers. Now at a time when the need is at historic levels, charities are at risk of losing the nearly one-third of their annual donations traditionally collected this month. What's more, 2020 has changed how giving happens, who donors give to, and reshaped the reasons why they give. Joining me remotely, Bobby Withorn, Director of North America Communications for GoFundMe, an American for-profit crowdfunding platform. Welcome, Bobby. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. And Laura G, Behavioral Economist and Associate Professor of Economics at Tufts University. Hi, Laura. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. And I'm going to start with you, Laura, because you study um, the reasons, the motivations for people to do anything, particularly around money. Um, one of the things that, that you have said is that the research shows that people will give when they are asked. But I say to myself, but everybody is asking now. So how does that work? How are people making decisions about giving or not giving if everybody's asking? It's a really good question. And I recently worked with Jonathan Meir over at Texas A&M to try to kind of like do a meta sort of look at all the different papers about if we get asked by more than one charity, what happens to, you know, the total amount that gets donated. It's a still kind of a really big open question in academics on academic research on this. So one possibility is that if you got asked more, you'd just give more. So we'd kind of be expanding the size of the pie, so to speak, of, of total generosity. Um, of course, another possibility in sort of you alluded to this in your question is that instead of expanding the size of the pie, we simply just change how it's divided amongst different charities. And maybe some of those charities that asked you just don't get anything. And unfortunately, I don't think there's a great consensus out there about what happens when we get asked more. Um, some of the research I find most compelling on this is uh, when there's major natural disasters, those natural disasters tend to get a lot of extra donations, but we don't see overall a lot of substitution away from other places. So my personal takeaway from much of the research is it doesn't seem like getting asked more means you, you give um, less to those charities. You might just be giving smaller amounts maybe, but um, still giving a lot. And another question, this year, the front part of the year, donations were up to charities. And that's, of course, pre-COVID lockdown, all of that, and 
as the year has gone on, they've dropped. And that is because, by the way, because so many people who used to give can't give anymore. They are in need themselves. Does the fact that we who may still have something to give know there are those people who can't afford to give motivate the rest of us to give more or to at least give something? Uh, I think it probably does. So I've done some research on my own looking at whether or not people are more likely to donate when they feel pivotal to reaching goals. And part of that research is about um, finding that when people feel like a charity needs to reach a certain goal, let's say, um, if they think that their donation is going to be necessary to reaching that goal, they're much more likely to donate. So if all of us are suddenly, you know, realizing that those of us who are lucky enough to be in a position to donate, that our donations are even more pivotal than usual, I'm guessing that's going to make us more likely to donate in this situation. Okay. So, Bobby Withorn, your company, GoFundMe, has become a major vehicle for people to give in a way that they feel is helpful. And a GoFundMe campaign generally is very, very narrowly focused. It's going to, you know where it's going. I note from your 2020 uh, annual report, the top fundraisers were America's Food Fund, the official George Floyd Memorial Fund, Frontline Responders Fund, and Justice for Priyanna Taylor Fund, which, of course, reads like the headlines from the past year. I'm going to first ask, you're not surprised by the fact that these are the top fundraisers. No, not at all. And, you know, in 2020, we've seen an outpouring of support from all across the country for individuals and causes. And folks, as you're thinking about giving, they want to see the tangible and direct impact of their donation. And so uh, this year, we, we've we seen uh, an increase in that donation activity to both individuals, causes, and charities across the platform. One of the things that you decided to do, because as you all were looking at who was giving and the kinds of funds that were being set up for those individuals you referred to, is create a special fund that uh, really is a response to COVID-19 and the issues of today. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so we um, we wanted to make it as easy as possible for a donor to make a single donation, and that donation can be spread to individuals and causes. And so we've created these causes, and you can donate to the COVID cause, and GoFundMe.org will collect that money and then distribute it to the relevant beneficiaries. And in this unprecedented year, we wanted to both make it the an easy way for, for folks to make that contribution and also see their impact. And in addition to the cause that you referenced, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've seen an increase in rent, food, and monthly bill fundraisers. And we also created a new category to allow anyone to contribute to someone who's struggling to pay their monthly bills, struggling to pay rent, keep keep the lights on. Um, and so we created an, a new category to to house those fundraisers and help connect the donors who want to give to to folks that need help. I want to take a listen to some voices. Community fundraisers help these three people. Estralita Edwell raised $6,000 to pay back $9,000 of pandemic linked debt. Jim Mimas, a single father of two, lost work as a concert photographer, was saved from eviction. And a local electrician, John Kenny, raised funds to repair the seriously damaged home of Gloria, an elderly Woburn, Massachusetts woman. So let's take a listen. It was definitely a whirlwind of emotions. It felt like uh, not only was there a pandemic happening, but also like, what was I going to do? This is what community does for each other. It's been very like uplifting for my heart and my spirit for those that have shown up. Thank you so much. 
from the bottom of my heart, you have kept me in my house. You have kept a roof over my kids' heads. You've helped us eat. I've lived here since late 1969. I live on a very, very, very limited income. I couldn't possibly afford to pay for this kind of help. I am so grateful. I want to get it safe and livable for her. Gloria is a wonderful lady, and if there's anybody that deserves getting a, um, a helping hand, it's her. So back to you, Laura G. One of the things we've seen, or there seems to be a, a trend that's going to remain permanent, is really the direct-to-direct connection. So yes, the top fundraisers for GoFundMe were America's Food Fund. That would be a big fund, as was the official George Floyd Memorial Fund. But these are all individual people that we just heard from. And there were funds set up for them so that if I were donating, it would go directly to them. That's something that hasn't always been top of line in terms of donations. Why do you think that's changing in the way that uh, Bobby Withhorn has said he's seeing a lot of on GoFundMe? Well, I think part of that is to do with technology enabling us to connect with more directly with people who are in need. So things like the GoFundMe platform, which is amazing, it's easier for a donor who maybe doesn't have a friend or family member who's personally in need to connect with someone who's far away, but who who needs something. And we get some trust from them being on a platform like GoFundMe or something else. We know that this person actually exists and we, you know, sort of believe that, that uh, you know, they're going to get the funds that, that we're giving to them versus just sort of sending it out into the ether. So I think part of it's technology-based, that it just was harder to give directly to people in previous decades. I think also part of it is driven by the feeling that you can tangibly see what your donation has done. And I think that trend's actually existed for a long time, that people tend to um, be more likely to donate to things where they understand the tangible output of their donation. So a related question is, for example, one of my colleagues said to me, I love the story of uh, Gloria, the elderly woman, Massachusetts woman who this local electrician raised a fund for and got her house pretty much redone. But she said there are so many people who are in the exact same situation. Why, you know, glad for Gloria, but why not understand that there's a broader issue and support the the advocacy uh, to address the broader issue as opposed to the individual person that you know about? So I think that's a really complicated question. And even to broaden it even more, there's many people in similar situations to Gloria in the U.S. But if you think about it globally, there are, you know, issues that even existed before the COVID pandemic that, you know, a dollar spent on a malaria net is probably much more effective in saving human life than a dollar spent on fixing somebody's um, electricity in their home. And there is actually a, a movement um, sometimes called effective altruism, which um, which I'm not endorsing or, or not endorsing, but it is the idea that, that maybe people, when they're thinking about making donations, try to think about where they're going to have their dollar do the most work on whatever they're trying to maximize. So it could be number of lives saved, it could be you know educational outcomes. And that sort of movement says that, you would just try to find the way to give that would just maximize that thing. And it may not be somebody nearby to you and it may not be tangible. And those two things kind of often will move in different directions. 
That's my guest, Laura G. She's a behavioral economist and associate professor of economics at Tufts University. So Bobby Withorn, in a six-month period, over $625 million was raised for people, causes, and organizations, 9 million donations. Um, that's mind-boggling when GoFundMe started seeing that happen. You know, what were the kind of responses that you can see on the platform of people being a part of that giving? You know, over the course of the last several months, as we've seen the giving increase for folks impacted by COVID, the thing that comes across time and again is that after they receive the support, they feel that support from their donors, that emotional support that they get when those donations pour in is very powerful. And in addition to the financial support, that support that they're getting from the community, from their friends, family, and even strangers, when that support comes in, that's a very powerful thing. And, and we have seen that time and again all, all across the platform. And on GoFundMe, we see folks starting starting fundraisers for small businesses, trying to keep them afloat, trying to support families who have lost hours or have lost their job. And I think there's this feeling of a lack of hope, right? And some folks are on the outskirts of hope. And there are donors who want to give. They want to make that impact. They want to support those who are struggling to get by. And over the course of the last several months, as, as we've all been battling COVID, that emotional support that people are getting is a very powerful tool and a theme that uh, comes across in campaigns each and every day. So Bobby has just well, reported the kind of range of emotions, the good feeling that you get and the feeling that you that you are actually doing something to help somebody who's in real need. But when there are situations where you don't feel like the money did go where it was supposed to go or there was some scam involved, I mean, it can do a lot of damage in terms of people feeling motivated to give. I am reminded of back during the time of the the Haiti earthquake uh, with Red Cross really suffered a great amount of damage when it was discovered that they were holding a fund. They weren't using it improperly, but holding it longer than many felt they should have instead of distributing the funds to people on the ground there. And I also just wanted to have all of us listen to this woman who felt the same way. This is Wendy Underwood. She posted a video on her Facebook back in 2017 claiming the Red Cross is dumping donations intended for Hurricane Harvey victims. The organization says it was false, but here's Wendy Underwood. For those of you that are giving your hard-earned money to the Red Cross, I'd like to show you something. So the Red Cross was instructed here in Houston to throw away all the dog food, all the crates, all the blankets that you donated with your hard-earned money, and they are instructed to throw it all away because they can get more, according to the director for Florida. So just throw it away. Throw away 600 blankets, crates, 500 pounds of dog food. So, Laura G., I think probably underline there, you know, there, I, I don't know exactly. We can't say the, as I said, the organization says it's not true. And as we know, most charities now say it's very helpful in those emergency situations really to have cash as opposed to things because they sometimes can't figure out how to distribute it. So it could have been a case of that. But 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 the larger point here is that if people feel that their their generosity has not been used well, that seems to me to damage all of charitable giving, not just the Red Cross in this instance. A am I right? 
Uh, I think you probably are correct. I know that there is some work out there that shows that people will sometimes look for um, sort of excuses to not give. And one of the excuses that people look towards is uncertainty in how their donation will be used. So I think that, you know, certainly stories like the one you just introduced, even if uh, all the accusations turn out to not necessarily be true, it, it, it hurts the trust in the sector. And I think it would trickle down to making people less likely to donate. So Bobby Withorn, you know, one of the things that uh, we hear about a lot, those of us in this business around this time from Giving Well and from Charity Navigators is urging people to be very careful about who they give to for reasons we've just said. When you give to GoFundMe, are there some protections or for folks who are giving that the cause that you're giving to is good? That's a great question and and we prioritize the tr- the trust and safety and and protect donors on our platform. And we have a variety of technical tools, but also um, teams of folks who are reviewing campaigns to, to make sure that the money goes to the right place. But the important thing here is that if there is misuse and, and something unfortunate happens, we have the GoFundMe guarantee in place. And so we will fully refund a donation. And so donors are fully protected by the GoFundMe guarantee. And that's an important step that, that we take because we want to make sure that folks are very confident in their donations and that their donations are going to the right place. And so we have a, a whole host of tools and teams and in addition, the, the guarantee to protect all of our users on the platform. Bobby Withorn, what do you think has changed permanently uh, in terms of how people donate because of COVID-19? What has changed is the fact that people can immediately in just in just a few clicks feel like they are in control and can have an impact in their community and on a larger issue. And so what we have seen actually is an increase in in not only the number of donations for for small businesses and fundraisers for small businesses, but people starting campaigns on behalf of other individuals and people starting campaigns on behalf of charities and and we think that's a trend that will continue into 2021 in the in the years to come where where people can immediately take action and uh, start a fundraiser on behalf of the cause mm-hmm. or on behalf of the charity that they're very passionate about and, and that they want to support. Uh, the same question to you, Lorgie, and I want to put a little bit of context on it. There is a new story out that a lot of state leaders are asking hunters, deer hunters specifically, to donate the extra deer meat to feed the hungry like to give it right to food banks because, the, the uh, as I've said, all of the needs have increased and, and uh, hunger is, is definitely one of them that uh, many food banks, and we've talked about it on my show, are in desperate need to get more to be able to service all those people. But this is a direct request. So when I ask you about charitable giving in general, that has been permanently changed in the way that uh, people think about charities or in the way how they think about giving. What do you see? It's very interesting. And it's very interesting that you bring up this idea of giving gifts in kind, you know, uh, deer meat or other food. I think that we are seeing people maybe take a more holistic approach to thinking how they can donate. You can donate monetarily, you can donate with goods and services. And I think we're seeing as maybe over time that people are actually seeing those things as closer substitutes than they used to. Maybe that's because we're all more used to doing more transactions via electronic things than we are used to doing. But I I do think you're seeing people be more open to giving gifts in the format that the charity or the person needs most than maybe in the specific format that they want to give. 
Mm. So let me follow up and say, what then do you think is the importance of, let's say, a Giving Tuesday, which has aggregated a moment for people to think more focused about donations? Has that been effective? And is that actually maybe the reason that a lot of charities are surviving during 2020 when they might not have because there is a focus like Giving Tuesday? So I do think that people give when they are reminded to give. And Giving Tuesday certainly is an excellent way of reminding many of us to give to the specific charities that are nearby us, but also ones that we haven't thought of for a while. So I think that we're going to see Giving Tuesday as something that's going to stay in the future. Uh, but I also think that we are going to see charities continue to reach out beyond just that one day of the year because they do get responses you know, to their, to their calls for needs throughout the year. And for you, Bobby Withorn of, of GoFundMe, now when people donate, again, as we've said, you go find your particular fund, you give money to that. But there's also been a, a, a big increase in cash transfers. Like, you know, I have some cash. I give you some if I feel like you needed it or if you ask for it. I, I don't know if you if you can navigate that kind of thing on your site. Uh, but whether you can or not, is that something you think is now a more permanent change in the donation space. You obviously see an increase in people making digital payments and transferring money to one another. I think what's what's unique about GoFundMe is that there is a storytelling component to your fundraiser, whether you're raising money for somebody else or you're raising money for yourself or your, or your small business. And that storytelling piece is very important. And I think as you are trying to raise money for a cause or, or trying to raise money to you know pay the bills that month, it's important to be transparent about why you need the funds and why you started the fundraiser. And so I think there will be this you know digital payments and, and, and moving money from one place to another, but I think that's, that's different than launching a cause, launching a fundraiser, launching a GoFundMe and raising money for a, a specific individual or your charity that you support. Got it. We should note that the CARES Act made it possible for people who don't itemize on their, their taxes to get a one-time only, that's only for this year, $300 deduction for charitable gifts. So you can donate in cash, check, or credit card to public charities. You cannot donate your volunteer hours or goods. This is really about actual money donations of some sort. And it's only for qualified 501c3 public charities. But again, Laura G., that sounds to me that's a, a focus on the need to support these charities. And that's got to be a good move in terms of helping the charities that are some of them on the brink at the end of this year um, just be able to be sustainable. Yeah, so I would agree that the uh, one-time $300 deduction for non-itemizers is very much likely to make people more likely to make monetary donations to charities, people who wouldn't otherwise get this benefit, because essentially what it does is it changes the price of giving for individuals. It makes it so that I, as a non-itemizer, which I am, I don't usually itemize, um, suddenly a dollar of giving costs me less than a dollar. So, you know, sort of Economics 101 says that if the price goes down, we tend to buy more of something. So I think we'll hopefully see that to take place. And one last thing to you, Laura G., the importance of, again, paying attention to who you give to if it's an organization so that you make sure that this is a, a viable organization. But what, how important is it to pay attention to what the overhead is? So in other words, if I give $100, I tend to think I'm giving $100, but some of that may necessarily be part of the overhead, and I shouldn't 
right away just think you're trying to scam me out of my total hundred dollars because you had to take ten for the administrative costs. So what what's a good balance to look at as you're giving uh, in terms of your donation versus the overhead? So I would personally say that um, I don't think there's sort of one magic number that's too much overhead. I would actually encourage people to think about what the charity is doing with the with their dollars and how efficiently they're using them. So like a made up example would be if you're looking to charity at two charities and you can give $10 to either, one of them is going to be able to provide, let's say, you know, five malaria nets and the other one could provide seven malaria nets. You should give to the one that provides the seven malaria nets for your $10, regardless of what the overhead ratio is at either place. Okay. Bobby Withorn, do you have any advice along those lines? And I just want to say that Many times now, some of the charitable organizations will tell you up front, you know, it would help if you just go ahead and pay this dollar fifty, so we don't have to pay the processing. So your full donation is actually going toward your cause. Yeah, you know, there are multiple ways that that charities can can support those administrative costs and cover those costs. I think from GoFundMe's perspective, we encourage folks to reach out to the campaign organizers, reach out to the charities, and and if you have questions. Feel free to ask them and feel free to ask your specific questions about where your donation is going, what programs and how will your donation be used. So we encourage folks to be transparent and also a potential donor to reach out to the fundraisers and ask them uh, any questions to uh, collect additional information before they make that donation. To the both of you, do you think that giving is going to climb and maybe get back to where it was pre-COVID-19? Yes, I, you know, we have seen an increase on our platform, but we believe that uh, you know, folks want to help. Folks want to provide that support. And this generosity will spread all across the country and all around the world. And we believe that the folks that are in a position to help will continue to help and the giving will increase for the, for the years to come. And you, Laura G. Uh, I tend to agree. I think that we might see a decline right now, but that like the rest of our economy, it will, it will probably recover and we will see an increase back to the same trends that we saw before. I like to end on a hopeful note. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Bobby Withorn is the director of North America Communications for GoFundMe, an American for-profit crowdfunding platform. Laura G. is a behavioral economist and associate professor of economics at Tufts University. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, news, under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubali and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.